is Zara Hirji. I am Stephanie McNeil, and you are watching AM to DM, where we have gotten through the midterm elections. Whew, let's all do a deep exhale. <laughs> Stephanie, it is Wednesday. I think you were up late watching the elections, though. Were there any races you were particularly covering? So I was here at BuzzFeed News downstairs at my desk until about midnight. Um, I was mostly editing social news, breakouts, viral tweets kind of stuff. Um, I did, right before I left, do a post about Beto O'Rourke memes. A lot of people were posting kind of sad, kind of funny memes about their love for Beto, and it made me laugh, and so that's what I wrote about. <laughs> Gotta love the memes. Well, there was some stuff going on in the environmental science world. Was tracking a couple environmental ballot initiatives that didn't actually end up passing. Wasn't super surprising. The money was totally against them. Uh, but then also my colleague Dan Vergano saw that six scientists were voted into Congress. Well, we always like seeing a diverse group of people and, you know, people who may not have had the opportunity to be a part of our uh, legislative body before, so that's very interesting. Yeah. Well, we want to hear from you guys. How are you feeling after last night? Were you watching? Were you watching our show? Were you watching a different show? And what is your mood like this morning about how the midterms went? Let us know using the hashtag AM2DM. Well, hopefully they were watching our show. Yeah. Uh, a lot happened in the elections last night. Uh, BuzzFeed News tweeted, the 2018 midterms have already brought a wave of historic wins. First Muslim woman in Congress, first Native American woman in Congress, youngest woman ever elected to Congress, first openly gay man elected U.S. governor, first woman governor of Guam. Whew, that was a mouthful. Kate Nassara, BuzzFeed News DC bureau chief watches all play out, and we are so thankful she is here to join us today with a recap. Hey, Kate. Good morning, guys. So first off, did you actually get any sleep? You look very awake, Kate, very fresh-faced. Yeah. It's not going to last very long. Uh, <laughs> I slept about four hours last night, so I'm um, doing good so far. I think we're all going to... Like. We're all going <laughs> to crash and have a little bit of a nap in approximately six hours. So yeah. one of the big talking points we were seeing on cable news and Twitter before the midterms was the possibility of a blue wave. What we hear at BuzzFeed News were saying last night, it was kind of more of a blue ripple. Can you want explain yeah. that a little bit? Sure. I mean, objectively, Democrats had a good night. They took the House back. Uh, and that is that is a huge thing for a party that hasn't been in that in power in the House since Obama's first term. Uh, what a blue wave would have indicated, you know, if they if they had gained more seats in the Senate, um, if they had won states like Florida or Georgia outright, those governorships um, don't not looking very good for Democrats. I mean, that's the kind of thing that people were anticipating. Uh, with a blue wave. But I think it is, you can't say that it wasn't a good night for Democrats. It absolutely was. So another one of the big trends is that more than 100 women were elected into Congress. What are some yeah. of the standouts? Yeah, so we've got um, Sharice Davids in uh, Kansas. Uh, she beat Kevin Yoder, who's a longtime Republican incumbent. Uh, Lauren Underwood uh, in Illinois in Illinois, excuse me. <laughs> See, there's the tired coming out. <laughs> uh, and Abby Finkenhauer in, in Iowa. Uh, um, they represent a, a very diverse spectrum of the, you know, it is a diverse group of people. Uh, ideologically, it's a very diverse group. Um, 
but women were really inspired to run um, this cycle. And, and I, and I don't think you can really attribute that to anything but a reaction to President Trump. Yeah, on cable news, they had these full screens every time someone flipped a race or every time someone won. And I was sitting there on my desk and I was just thinking that I just kept seeing women, even if they were women I didn't know or I hadn't heard about or I didn't know anything about yeah. them ideologically. I just kept seeing women and that seemed different to me for sure. Yeah. Um, it was pretty remarkable how much people um, stepped up and were inspired to run. And there were lots of group in groups encouraging women to run, helping train women uh, how to run for Congress. I mean, it was a, it was a great night for women. Yeah, well, another, one thing that I keep seeing on Twitter is there was a lot of discussion about voter suppression in many different states, particularly Georgia, before the race happened. What did it actually look like at the polling places last night? Was this a huge concern or was the uh, worry overblown? No, yeah, I mean, it was a huge concern, still probably is a huge concern. I mean, things that um, Brian Kemp, who is the Secretary of State and conceivably the, the next governor of Georgia, uh, did before the election could have had an impact. It is really, really hard to judge that right now. I mean, turnout was so much higher um, in places like Atlanta, um, like DeKalb County, uh, where if there was a, a huge amount of voter suppression happening, um, you wouldn't have seen turnout like that. However, it is really, really hard to quantify at this point how many people who would have voted weren't able to either because they were part of a voter, you know, the voter purge, they were purged off the rolls. I, we won't know kind of for a little while the true um, impact, if any, if that had any impact at all in that race. So I did want to dig into the governor's race in Georgia. I know that the Democratic contender, Stacey Abrams, uh, refused to concede. So what's the status there? Yeah, I, I mean, it's still unclear. There are still votes coming in. Her hope right now is that she's able to get Kemp uh, below 50, so that way it would go into a runoff in December. Um, if she can pull his vote total below 50, then it will, then a runoff will happen. Uh, historically, runoffs aren't great for Democrats. I mean, it, it is very, very hard to turn out the same level of vote and the same level of enthusiasm in an election one month later after everyone has already done all this work. Um, but that is that is the shot right now. She's still losing by about 75,000 votes, um, but her campaign was hopeful that those votes were there to at least bring Kemp down to below 50 percent. Well, we're definitely going to have to watch that one more today. I know when I woke up this morning, there was a lot of races that hadn't been decided, and I was kind of scrolling through Twitter, seeing yeah. which ones got called overnight. Which ones, though, are still open that we still don't have a result on besides Georgia? Yeah, um, the Arizona Senate race uh, is unknown right now. Kirsten Cinema versus Martha uh, McSally. Um, there are a bunch of votes still outstanding. And the Green Party candidate, who actually said that uh, she was endorsing Cinema, um, but was still on the ballot, uh, pulled off a bunch of votes. Um, that race is uh, super close. As far as we can tell, Dana Rohrabacher, who was a very pro 
a Russia candidate in California. It is looking like he lost his race, but that one is also still outstanding. And then um, there are a couple others throughout the country. But but those are some big ones that we're watching today. Well, we know that you're going to closely keep following those and maybe we'll have you back to eventually tell us what happens. Thank you so much for joining us. But take a nap first. Yes. <laughs> well, Mother Jones tweeted this excerpt from Beto O'Rourke's concession speech. Tonight's loss does nothing to diminish the way I feel about Texas and this country. I'm so fucking proud of you guys. Yes, he actually said it, and Stop I did too, because we're not on cable news. <laughs> Joining us now from Texas is BuzzFeed News senior culture writer Anne Helen P Peterson, who witnessed it all unfold. Hi, Anne. Hi. So you were at his party last night. What was the reaction like when it was clear the race was over? Uh, it actually, so they put, uh, footage of the race being called up on the jumbotron because the party was at a, a minor league baseball stadium. There were like 7,000 people there. Um, and there were a lot of boos, but at the same time, I think most people who were there and most people who supported Beto were pretty prepared for this, for this loss, you know, like there was a hope that maybe he could pull it out but they were pretty prepared. So the rest of the party, you know, like I, we were doing the Twitter live show last night and the rest of the party was like raucous. <laughs> um, I think it's because people recognize exactly what Beto did to, for Democrats in the state, um, not only in terms of like the races down the ballot, but he also just energized Democrats, made them realize there were Democrats in their town, you know, even though they thought that maybe, oh, I'm the only Democrat in this place that I live and built an incredible volunteer infrastructure. So there's a lot of optimism. Yeah, I mean, he was kind of always the underdog going into this race. Not even kind of, like he was an enormous, <laughs> enormous underdog, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so what does that mean? You know, what's the takeaway since the race did end up being, you know, so close? Well, I think you can see two takeaways happening right now. One is from people who don't live in Texas and are on Twitter and are talking about like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that this happened. Like, what a bummer. And then I, you know, right now I'm texting and DMing with the dozens of volunteers that I've met over the last week and through in August when I was here earlier. And they, you know, they're a little disappointed and they say that they're like, I'm a little bummed. But at the same time, I am so excited about what we built. And so I think anyone who's watching this race and watching the coverage needs to keep that in mind, that there's a real schism between how people are reading this race nationally and how actual Texans are feeling about it. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, Beto did have such a big support nationwide. One of the things I saw a ton of on Twitter last night was people saying, Beto 2020, is that where he's looking? I mean, he has said that he is not, um, that he promised his family that he wouldn't. <laughs> And I mean, we'll see. I think that he is a, you know, people say he is a once in a generation talent when it comes to campaigning and the way that people react to him and, you know, seeing him in person, I can say that that's absolutely the case. But at the same time, I think that, you know, it's late, actually, if you were thinking of running in two years, it's pretty late to get into the game, but he has a lot of recognition and momentum at this moment. Well, I guess we'll see how that plays out. So you had tweeted this about Ted Cruz's victory speech. This is actually pretty striking. What was so shocking about his speech? 
Well, he said something that actually is pretty borrowed from the Beto handbook, which is he basically said, I'm summarizing, that he wants to represent the people who didn't vote for him. And, you know, that was that was really something that Beto had been driving home was that even if, you know, you don't vote for me, I want to be a senator who represents all of the state. And to see that mirrored in Cruz's rhetoric is pretty striking. Whether or not that will actually come to pass is another question. Yeah. Do you think that this race is going to have an impact on how Ted Cruz behaves or uh, legislates in the Senate? Because he's such a polarizing figure. (laughs) I don't think you can predict anything about Ted Cruz. I really don't. You know, like he is, he is, people sometimes, I don't know if people forget, people sometimes don't know that he is as far to the right as he is. Like he is a tea partier. Um, And so I don't think that even though he's saying it in his speech, I don't know how his incredibly conservative views will also represent people who are much farther to the left. Yeah, well, fair enough. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us, Anne. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. I sincerely regret that I couldn't bring it home for you. Democrat Andrew Gillum told supporters after conceding the Florida governor's race. But I can guarantee you this, I'm not going anywhere. Well, our reporter Paul McLeod joins us from Orlando this morning. Paul, how's it going? Hey, hello. We made it to the other side. We did. We did. Congratulations. Yeah. It's great to see you, Paul. So there was some racial controversy in this campaign. How big of a role did that end up playing? Yeah, it ended up becoming a big storyline of this campaign. Andrew Gillum, of course, was campaigning to be the first black governor of Florida. And right away, things got off to a rough start. Uh, Ron DeSantis uh, said that uh, voters would uh, monkey it up if they voted for him. Uh, Of course, that sparked a lot of controversy. He said he didn't mean anything racial by it. But there were other incidents. He uh, declined to return a... um, a contribution from someone who had made some pretty awful racist remarks. The KKK got involved with some robocalls against Gillum. And this all came to a head during their second and final debate when on the stage, Andrew Gillum said of DeSantis, I'm not saying he's racist, but the racists think he's a racist, which became this sort of instantly iconic line. Now, of course, Republicans also uh, fought on this uh, ground as well. They uh, accused Gillum of playing the race card. And I mean, I can tell you last night at uh, Ron DeSantis' victory, well, at the time, it was just an election party, uh, one guy I was talking to went on for a long time about how one of his big motivations was he was tired of uh, white Republicans being called racists and he was going on about how there's a double standard. So as with anything with race, uh, it really cuts both ways. Very interesting that that would have an impact like that. Well, obviously, Democrats in Florida are a little bit bummed about Gillum's loss, but there was a big measure that passed, Amendment 4, which restored Mm. voting rights to one million people convicted of felonies. That was a huge win for the party in that state. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, this is actually the biggest enfranchisement of voters in decades. It's uh, over a million people. Basically, Florida was one of the few states that took away people's rights to vote uh, forever if they were convicted of a felony and sent to prison. So even if you had served your time, you were not able to vote afterwards. Well, this proposition will change that. Over a million people will gain the right to vote, uh, which is obviously a huge deal even in a state the size of Florida. And I mean, 
you know, we're a little early on, on, on out on projecting what that would mean for future elections. But in general, I mean, we see the trend that when it comes to allowing more people to vote, that is good for Democrats. So in a state where they came closer than they had in a long time in the governor's race, uh, this might be another thing that uh, helps their projections for uh, 2020 and, and on out. Yeah, it will be really interesting to see what happens with all of these new voters. Uh, but I did want to go back. I know that you were essentially hanging around with the DeSantis camp last night and hearing a little bit more about what that was like. Well, it was an interesting one because going into last night, the polls had consistently showed a very thin uh, but steady lead for Andrew Gillum. And that came through earlier in the night. I think at one point, DeSantis had showed, they of course had Fox News up, so they had uh, the graphic up of showing DeSantis was down a couple of points to Gillum. And I was actually talking to DeSantis's grade one teacher at the time, and she just sunk. You could just physically see her just like, no, no. But then the polls kind of turned around, got better and better. And uh, of course, he won in the end. And by the time the results started coming in, I was talking to some of his campaign people. And as soon as they were able to crunch the mental math, even before it was officially declared, but they kind of knew it was over. I mean, they're you know jumping around and high-fiving and it became a, a huge celebration. People, uh, even on a night where Republicans lost to the House, the Republicans in that room were ecstatic. Wow, his first grade teacher. That's so interesting. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for breaking this all down for us. All right, good talking with you guys. Thank you. Later in the show, Ohio Representative Tim Ryan is joining us. But up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. guys how you were feeling after all of the election results last night. I just wanted to point out a tweet from Alan. Thank you so much for watching. You said, let's just say I'm feeling a lot better than I did when I cast my first vote in the 2016 election. I'm feeling much better. I'm elated about Florida's new amendment granting former felons the right to vote. There were a lot of firsts and I'm so here for all of them. So Alan is feeling optimistic. We're seeing kind of a mix on our timeline, but keep letting us know how you're feeling. Yes, please keep reaching out throughout the show. We love hearing your guys' feedback. It's the best part of the show. Okay, we're gonna take a little break from politics and do some fire <laughs> tweets. Are you ready, Zara? Oh, I'm so ready. Okay. <laughs> Jessica Valenti, you tweeted, on a day when there's so much discord, I'm glad we all agree that marathon proposal guy fucking sucks. Okay, so I need a little bit of the backstory as far as I heard this guy like proposed mid-race. Okay, yeah. So this is the New York City Marathon was this weekend, if you didn't know. And this was at mile 16 of the marathon. 16? A, yeah, a guy, so a guy proposed at mile 16 of the marathon. Decision. Now, if you've never run a marathon, Miles 16 through 18 are kind of the times where everything can go to shit. If you're having a bad day, it's getting really bad then. You still have a long time to go. Yeah, it's like halfway. Yeah, so for him doing that at that point of the race, I just do not understand. <laughs> and even if she was having a good race, you're taking like, you're putting this huge emotional burden on her in the middle of her marathon. And what about that time? So yeah, keep what going. about your time? <laughs> anyway, they're telling me I need to move on, but I could talk about this all day. All right, all Zara. Day. All right, so internet person tweeted, how am I 31 and having the worst acne of my life? 
also me, more stressed than I've ever been, nonstop travel for five months, always forget to wash face at night, junk food diet, can't stop squeezing zits and making them worse. Me, there's just no way to know, I guess. So oh. it me? Uh. <laughs> I feel that so hard, especially the nonstop travel. I, I'm so, so tired. And the lack of sleep. <laughs> That's for sure. All right, AC tweeted. You, weird flex, but okay. An intellectual. Odd gloat, but understandable nonetheless. Me, a genius. Peculiar boast, but alas. I guess I, I guess I think that geniuses are British. You're welcome. Yeah, try You're not, welcome, try not that accent. <laughs> that was a terrible accent. <laughs> so this one is from BuzzFeed's own Emily Tampkin. Looks like today we're going to get a true wave of takes. All the takes. <laughs> if I have to read like one more white guy's take with no evidence to back it up on the internet on this election, I think I'm gonna like implode. Like just keep everything to yourself, guys. Leave it to like diverse voices or professionals. I don't know. I just don't care. I don't care what you have to say. I can right. also watch that tweet. I mean that gif over and over and over again. So true, so true. <laughs> All right, are you ready for the tweet of the day? I am. Let's do it. This one is from Sean. Boy, are you an exit poll because you are very unreliable, but it will take me two years to figure <laughs> it out. Woo. Gotta love when you can find some humor in the crazy confusion of these elections and our whole system in America. You know, gotta just gotta laugh. Real deep there. Right, I know, right? <laughs> All right, well up next, we're going live from the district to talk to Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan. Don't go away. Welcome back. I'm joined by BuzzFeed News Editor-in-Chief Ben Smith, and we are going live from the district with Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan, who won re-election last night. Congressman Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. And, and Congressman, a lot Mate. of people had close races thank last you. night. You did not. You won with 61% in a district that Donald Trump won. And I wonder what, you know, what Americans kind of waking up this morning should take from your victory and from Sherrod Brown's win in, in Ohio. Um, you know, what, 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 what's the lesson of the night for you? I think the real lesson is that the economic issues that working class people are facing in places like Youngstown, Ohio, Northeast Ohio, industrial Midwest are really key. And, and you gotta, you gotta really focus on those bread and butter issues, jobs, wages, healthcare, cost of education, uh, you know, opiate epidemic. Those are the kind of things that people voted on, I think, in this election and why you saw a guy like Sherrod Brown, who just consistently that message on, on the economics, uh, was able to win a state in Ohio where we didn't do very well with our statewide candidates, but Sherrod was able to win and I was able to win. And now you're a rare Democrat who's, who's uh, dared challenge Nancy Pelosi, your, your uh, House soon to be majority leader. And I know you, we, neither of us got much sleep. My colleague, Lisa Villa, told me you talked to her after midnight last night, told her you don't have an intention of challenging her, but you do want to be part of the conversation about, about a challenge. And one question I had for you that I can't quite figure out is, is, whether it's you or somebody else, is this a challenge from the right or from the left? No, it's a, it's a strategic challenge. I mean, we, uh, Leader Pelosi, uh, should be commended for all of her good work over the years, uh, made history, uh, quite frankly. And I was there with her to help make that history. Uh, but now she's a very unpopular figure in many parts of the country. I think the exit polls yesterday showed her at, uh, had her negatives at 55% on 
to par with uh, Donald Trump. And so it's important for us, I think, is we're not just looking at winning the election and getting the gavels back, which we're all very excited about, but what's in the best interest of these newer members coming in. And that's what I think the next 24 to 48 hours is going to be talking to the new members and saying what in our leadership, what's going to help you get reelected because we want to sustain this majority and actually build on it in 2020 with the presidency, with the Senate, so that we can start implementing this stuff. You know, you need power and you, you got to win elections to get power and you need to be really smart with, you know, who we're putting forth. And I think there's a great opportunity for us to kind of uh, get around Donald Trump by having having some uh, new uh, people in place to make the arguments that will connect to the industrial Midwest and then the South. I mean, we're still not winning in the Midwest like we should, and we're not winning in the South like we should. It's definitely going to be fascinating to see what happens. But now that the midterms are over, obviously everyone's going to start talking about 2020. So I got to ask you, are you thinking no, about running? No, no, they're not. That's that's a long way off. No one's talking about that right now. <laughs> no, no, oh, no, 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 they definitely are. So are you thinking that you might try and run for president in 2020? You know, the first step is getting House leadership in place. Uh, and then I'm going to I want to I want to play a, a role in getting, you know, the kind of Midwest blue collar progressives, you know, back at front and center and on. Our party he can win. Sherrod Brown won. He's as progressive as it gets. I won in Ohio. I'm as progressive as it gets. And, and we should be able to go to communities like Youngstown, Ohio, and Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, you know, the big 10 states, and win. We should be able to go as progressives and win. And I want to make sure that, that our leadership in the House of Representatives reflects that. Uh, and then in 2020, we'll, we'll look and see where we are uh, here in a few weeks and in a month after we get through these elections for House leadership. But I want to be a part of defining that conversation, reconnecting with working class people and build that coalition. I mean, there's a lot of people in the country that need help. You know, seniors, working class people where wages are down, students who are getting burdened by, by debt. The economy's not working. We're not competing with China in the way we should on and on. And I think a, a blue collar progressive has a lot to say in that. And so that's my goal in the next few weeks. And then I'll come back on later. All right. And we'll we, talk about where we are then. Well, we appreciate your commitment to breaking your news here either way. Yeah, but, um, definitely. But, uh, but now just to go back to what you just said, is, is the kind of difference that you're talking about a different direction for Democrats? Is that a matter of style or is it a matter of substance? I think you actually agree with Nancy Pelosi with kind of the progressive wing of the party on things like Medicare for all. You know, are you... Is this style or substance that you're talking about here? Well, I, I think it's a little bit of both. I think first and foremost, it's about showing up. I think Democrats have forgotten how to show up in some of these communities and really make the progressive argument on why the progressive views are good for working class people, good for women, you know, uh, good for people who are, you know, working hard and playing by the rules, working for people who take a shower after work. The progressive agenda. But we haven't showed up in a lot of these communities for a good many years. And I think why we won some of these communities in the last uh, cycle last night is because we had great candidates in those communities that were connected to those communities and Republicans crossed over and voted for them, even though they had a progressive agenda. That's first and foremost. And then secondly, I think sometimes, you know, progressives, uh, we get in the we get in the habit of having a list of we we check Medicare for all and we check legalization of marijuana and we check this ad issue like it's an itemized list. I think 
from a stylistic uh, standpoint, we need to frame our issues as why they're good for everybody. Why is Medicare for all, for example, good for the economy and good for business? You know, one of the biggest complaints I get people and labor unions is healthcare. Let's get that off of their plate. Let's let businesses focus on innovation, hiring people, wages, pensions, getting involved in developing the newest technologies around green energy, material science, additive manufacturing, all of these things. And, and let, let the government do the insurance piece of, of health care. But Democrats and progressives, we don't really talk about it that way. Let's talk about Medicare all for all as good for business, let debt-free and, and free college as good for business. We're in a global economy now. We only have 330 million people. We're getting our clock cleaned by China in the fields of STEM. Why are we putting, why are we putting up all these hurdles for working class people who are in go into the STEM fields, but they can't afford it because of the hurdles that we put up. Talk about, you know, free college and tuition free college in, in that vein. And now you start seeing, okay, this is all about us being a competitive country. This is all about us empowering our people. This is about us competing against China. I mean, that's how we need to frame things, not some itemized list, but a comprehensive, hopeful, aspirational, uplifting, elevated agenda that gets us out of the mud we're in right now. Another, you know, another version of this, another way to hear this when you talk about kind of blue collar candidates, the industrial Midwest is, you know, a version of what Michael Avenatti said recently, which is that if Democrats nominate anyone other than a white guy, they'll lose. Is that what you're saying? No, that's not what I'm saying. I think we saw uh, both in Florida and in Georgia, two very, very skilled African-American candidates who came very, very close to winning in two uh, red states. I mean, uh, almost winning a gubernatorial in Georgia uh, as, as an African-American female, that is extremely impressive. So I'm not talking about what color we are, and I think we kind of need to get past that, that we need an agenda that resonates with everybody, white, black, brown, gay, straight. Uh, how are we going to lift people up? And there's a lot of different people that can do that. I just think talking about those progressive issues in a, in a more comprehensive uplifting way puts us as the post the party of opportunity the party of lifting up families as opposed to oh you keep hearing these guys talk about this issue that issue well how's it all fit together you know why are we doing this the progressive agenda is an agenda that is for working families for people that just can't get ahead that's why we're for medicare for all that's why we're for tuition-free college, not just as, a, as one item on our list. So obviously this midterm election season has been stressful. We're lurking a lot of hours. And I saw that you use meditation as a big part of your routine. Can you talk a little bit about that? And is that something you would recommend for your new colleagues coming into Congress to kind of step away from it all? Uh, it is a tool that I find essential these days. You see a lot of athletes uh, using it uh, nowadays, actually having coaches, uh, chief mindfulness officers in their programs, the Chicago Cubs, Seattle Seahawks. Kobe Bryant was a big meditator. CEOs are doing it. So it's essential for anybody who wants to reduce their stress, improve their focus and concentration, and improve their own personal performance in whatever way they're doing that in their own lives. 
meditation, I think, is uh, something that's really important these days. We have so much information coming at us. We have so much technology that's always on us, uh, you know, fear of missing out and all the rest. Um, take five minutes a day or 10 minutes a day and just turn all your technology off and be quiet. Your mind starts to settle down and you get yourself out of fight or flight mode. And now not to get political with this, but, you know, Donald Trump's whole strategy is how do I get people in fight or flight mode? How do I use fear to scare people into thinking I'm the strong man that's going to come in and save them? And mindfulness practices, meditation practices, meditation, they get your mind out of fight or flight mode. So you're kind of seeing things clearly. You respond instead of react. And it's great for kids. I mean, you see, we're doing this in schools now. And these kids who you know have a, attention issues and all the rest, they're using it. And behavior improves, test scores go up. So I recommend it to anybody. And I actually have a book uh, called Healing America that talks about this practice and how it's being used in the field of education, healthcare, uh, in the military. Ours use these kind of practices. And there's a chapter in the science of actually how it improves your brain function along the way. So it's uh, essential these days. This has been a public service announcement from Congressman. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Congressman. Thanks for having me. Up next, I'm sitting down with actor Jason Manzukis. Don't go away. I'm here with actor Jason Manzukis, who plays the most lovable, terrible person on so many shows like The League, Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Good Place, and now stars in the film The Long Dumb Road. Jason, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So I got to ask, since that's all we're talking about today, did you watch the elections last night or did you just kind of tune out? I, I, I kind of half and halfed it. I, I, we had a screening for The Long Dumb Road, so I went to that. Did a Q&A afterwards, and then at the bar afterwards, just watched the TV, and then walked through town <clears throat> at one point, and then stopping at all the spots where people had giant TVs. And it was great. Here in New York, people were like gathered around outdoor spaces just watching big TVs. It was great. Yeah, that's a really cool part about New York. So obviously, we've all seen you in so many different things, and you've played a lot of people who are kind of lovable scumbags, right? But you're really nice in real life. So. How do you hone that balance between these characters that you play and then your real life persona? Oh, well, I mean, <clears throat> it's, I think having these characters allows me to exercise kind of my, you know, the, the, the grosser instincts, you know, like all the things that, that we keep hidden, all the kind of stuff that we don't uh, participate in. I very luckily am allowed to on TV and in movies uh, indulge in those kind of like either rude or outrageous behaviors. It's just pretty fun. So in the movie, Long Dumb Road, we have you play a down-on-his-luck mechanic who accepts a road <coughs> goes on a road trip with a 19-year-old boy. And I think we have a clip. Let's take All right, let's set up that clip. Let's go. <laughs> clip. What are you, like an artist or something? I'm going to start art school. That's why I'm driving to a light. Fuck. Yeah. Good for you. Thank you. What's your philosophy? My philosophy. Yeah, like your artist's philosophy. What's your outlook on the world? What do you got to say? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, listen, I'm not an artist. I'm like a fucking piece of shit, you know? I'm a zero, but even I've got a philosophy. Uh-huh. Three things matter in life. Friends, shelter, and a little bit of food in my belly. Everything else, bro, 
It's fucking bullshit, and I'm at war with bullshit. Everyone hates bullshit, right? Yeah, right? I mean, those are some wise words. Oh, everyone hates bullshit. I mean, that's true. Do you yeah. have a life philosophy, or is that your life philosophy? Uh, that's not my life philosophy. <laughs> I don't know that I really have a life philosophy. Do you? I don't know. I mean, I like words. Words that you live by. Everyone hates bullshit. It's a pretty good one. That's not bad. Yeah. That's not bad. Okay, let's both get that tattooed. Yeah. Today. Let's do it. Let's do it. Right Magic now. Tattoos. Bring in the tattoo artist. What? I'm into it. They're not here. Oh. I'm into it. I we actually, we actually have, we actually have one on staff. It's I so don't weird. doubt that. <laughs> Somehow <laughs> at BuzzFeed, I'm not surprised that there's a tattoo artist. <laughs> On staff. I know, right? It's when we get the magic BFF tattoos with our coworkers. Yeah, just like, just giving out like stars and dolphins all day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I just want to double check with you though. Double check? Yeah, double check. Have we already single checked on something? I want to double check with you. You do not endorse 19 year olds giving random strangers rides across the country, correct? Such a good question. Um, Are you saying that this uh, movie itself is advocacy for teenagers picking up uh, gross old scumbags on the side of the road. You know what? Hey, take from it what you will. If somebody out there says, listen, this movie inspired me. I picked up a drifter. The drifter was a serial killer. You know, that's probably going to happen a lot less than like I picked up a drifter. I had like a really positive experience and I made a lifelong friend, you know? So you do endorse it. Yeah, I'm kind of endorsing it. All right. I mean, get out there, kids. Pick up those weirdos. Pick up a weirdo. You heard it right from him. It's from Jason. Okay, so I have to talk to you about Big Mouth. My husband just got me into Big Mouth. Okay. And so I have a funny story. I was at the dentist, and you know, sometimes they let you watch TV, and my husband's been trying to get me to watch Big Mouth. So I was like, oh, why would you put on the show Big Mouth? And then while I was Not getting- Not knowing. Yeah, while I was getting a cavity filled, it's like the most dirtiest yeah. show playing. Now, can the can the people in the dental office hear oh, or yeah. are you on headphones? Oh yeah. Oh wow. Oh yeah, the dentist was hearing Were they it. laughing? Um, most important, did your dentist laugh? Yes. Yes. Luckily, the hygienist was like, I love this show, but I felt so uncomfortable. I just wanted to like oh, crawl so in funny. a hole and die. Mostly but, all I'm trying to do, my comedy, like actually my philosophy, actually to go back to your initial question, is to make dentists laugh. <laughs> I feel as though I'm creating content to be watched primarily in dental offices while people are possibly under the influence of gas. Yeah, I mean, he was deaf. I think he did give a chuckle. There was a few like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. And I was just kind of like, yeah, this is, I mean, I couldn't talk. So I guess, I guess it was good because I couldn't talk. But the show is so good. It shows so many, it's just so true. It's like every single line a character says, it's something you experienced as a kid. Oh, yeah. Is that why you like working on the show? I mean, yes, in that, like, I love that the show is so, um, so uh, pays such close attention to all of the kind of miseries of puberty and that age and that middle school age. And we don't normally see kids like that. We see either like little kids or we see like coming of age stories for high school kids. But we never see like the gross middle years. And it's so fun to be able to do that. Now, it's also fun for me because like I get to work with people that I've known for 20 years. I get to like hang out with and like improvise and riff uh, off of scripts that are amazingly written uh, by talented, incredible writers. Um, as a job, it's amazing. Uh, but then as a piece of TV, I think it's, I think it's super funny, but then also like uh, really kind of sweet and heartfelt, which I really like about it. 
Yeah, when I'm watching the show, it seems to me that the storylines are so spot on. They have to be actual experiences of, a lot of the them writers. Are. A lot of them are. You know, a lot of them are either um, the experiences of the writers, the experiences that Andrew and uh, Nick, Nick Kroll and Andrew Goldberg created the show based on their own childhood friendship. And so for them, a lot of the stories are the stories they remember from childhood or, you know, like my characters based on <clears throat> the close-up magic character, uh, element of the character is based on one of their friends. The having sex with a pillow is based on another one of their friends. Like these are real stories that really happened. And a lot of the other, and they have us come in and talk about our childhoods and stuff like that. So those things weave their way in. So it's I, good. I knew the pillow had to be a real thing. Oh yeah. It's just not something you come up with off the top of your No, head. no, no, the pillow is a real thing. And you know, like, I don't know, how often, you know, you talk to people who are who do this, but like as an actor, you know, like you really have to prepare and dig in on a part. So so I spent like a good six months in a monogamous relationship with a um with a body pillow that you know, we broke up recently. Uh I know it's been in the tabloids and I don't wanna talk about it, but uh you know, it was a pretty significant relationship in my life. I'm so sorry to hear about that. No, no, it's okay. It's just, you know, you meet a pillow, you think it's the one that you've been looking for, you know, memory foam, because you want to be remembered, you know? True, true. That's, that's such, such a hard yeah. story. I'm so you know, glad it's to an, hear about that. It, it's an exclusive right here. What? We got married. We got secretly married. It's an exclusive. I'm giving you a BuzzFeed exclusive. Me and the pillow got married. Are you going to have know a what? baby it's pillow? It's annulled. We you got it in a Did you have a baby pillow? Like, no, we didn't have a baby pillow. Here's the awkward thing. That bit of uh, the storyline is fantasy because what I have found out is that pillows don't have reproductive organs. Oh. Pillows don't have a uterus, <laughs> eggs, fallopian tubes. They don't have a period every month. Uh, pillows don't. I'm just learning so much today. Yeah, pillows don't have periods. What's up? I Busty. love that if people are watching this interview and have not seen Big Mouth, they are just like, what They're the like, What fuck? is going on? <laughs> I'm going to turn this off and turn that on. Yeah, it's a great endorsement for Big Mouth, right? Absolutely. Well, Jason. Come on. Jason, thank you so much for thank joining Thank you so us. much. The Long Dumb Road comes out in select theaters on November 9th. And up next, Zara and Dan Vergato, Science Daddy, are breaking down all the latest science news. Hey, welcome back. So as you now know, I am a climate reporter for BuzzFeed News. So today we are having a special science edition of Science Says with AM to DM with fan favorite and science daddy, Dan Vergano. Welcome to the set. Hey, Zara. Good to see you. Good to see you again. So Dan and I, we're both science reporters, uh, but we wanted to go through some of the biggest headlines we've seen on Twitter. Uh, we're going to start with something a little bit light, though. So starting with the American Geophysical Union, which is hosting a Twitter competition where they are asking researchers to sum up their research in haiku form on Twitter. So do you want to do that for us on your reporting? Can you come up with a haiku? I'm more of a limerick guy. Uh, so, so no? Yeah, no. Well, it's okay, because I was ready for that. Mm -hmm. I, knew, I knew he would do it, so I came up with a haiku. Y'all ready for my poetry debut? 
Running on Coffee, Pitch Story, Call Sources, Write Pub, Next Day, Do It All Again. I know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Beautiful. You. Beautiful. <laughs> <Nice work laughs> but we will jump into the science, and by science, I mean aliens. So CN, CN, CNN tweeted, a mysterious cigar-shaped object spotted tumbling through our solar system last year may have been an alien spacecraft sent to investigate Earth, astronomers from Harvard University have suggested. So Dan, this comes from Harvard. It's true, right? There's aliens? Probably not, no, <gasps> um, yeah. No, um, tell Yeah, me sorry. Uh, Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics is the uh, big place for looking at asteroids and such and comets, uh, and the folks pushing this idea are fun guys, very smart people, uh, but they are also guys who are really keen on the idea of using um, solar sails, which would uh, use sunlight to push spacecraft around and getting those to other planets and around other stars. And so not surprisingly, they're kind of keen on the idea of uh, this object, uh, uh, Oumuamua, uh, being a, uh, uh, an that alien. That sounded right thing. to me. Yeah, it's close. It's, it's Hawaiian I mean, for passenger. Yeah. <laughs> or explorer, so sorry. The astronomy community was a little bit up in arms over this, right? Yeah, basically every, like, uh, I'm a serious rational astronomer was, like, poo-pooing this idea. Uh, it turns out in astronomy it's cool to come up with weird ideas that are kind of a little nutty, you're allowed to do it. Uh, they meant breaking the rules. Uh, on the other hand, there was a very nice paper in June that uh, you know, suggested this is just a dead comet <laughs> and what they're measuring here isn't aliens but just like outgassing from a comet that's been heated up a little bit and starting to go yeah, outgassing is just essentially when it's like warming up, so it's water and other things spring out, right? Right. This thing has been like in deep space forever, like 400,000 <laughs> years, and so it's pretty dang cold. And uh, it gets close to the sun, starts to heat up, gets away from the sun, melting more, and then you have like a little more of the gas of it going off, and that's just enough to give it a little push. You know, we're talking like centimeters uh, over, you know, days uh, off course, and so that's what got everybody excited. Well, speaking of melting, the National Snow and Ice Data Center shared an update. October sea ice extent in the Arctic ranks third lowest in satellite record. Extent remains especially low on the Atlantic side of the Arctic in the Barentis and Laptev seas, which may relate to the Atlantification of the Arctic Ocean. Um, so what does the Atlantification of the Arctic Ocean look like? It's a lot more open water and a lot less ice, basically. Uh, what's happened is there's less ice. Um, ice is fresh water. Uh, the amount of saltiness in the water controls how much upwelling there is. These are all fun scientific words. Of warm water from the Atlantic. The Atlantic water gets warmer, so you have more of less ice. And so the Barents Sea, places like uh, Nova Zemla and uh, Svalbard are suddenly uh, warmer. Yeah. Ah, so that's how you pronounce it. Yes. Climate change strikes again. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sure everyone saw that adorable video of a determined baby bear climbing up a mountain next to his mama. Well, The Atlantic tweeted some maybe bad news. A viral video of a baby bear climbing up a snow cliff is not a life-affirming tale of persistence. What? It's a video of a bear fleeing from the drone that was filming it. Whoa. Okay, Dan, what's going on here? Can 2018 give us no good news? Basically, no. Uh, you know, it turns out it's a bad idea to chase wild animals around with a drone. Uh, 
There was that fun video from the zoo where the chimp punched a drone. At least it didn't happen here. But it really seems like biologists who take a look at this video uh, said that the drone was scaring the heck out of the bear and its mother and possibly putting it in danger. And so there you go with your viral video on animals. Yeah. And we don't even know really no. who took it, right? It There's seems a lot to be of questions. from Russia or you know, brown bears in Russia. Um, not a lot of rules being followed there. Well, Dan, thank you so much for talking with me, talking science. And if you're interested in learning more about the future, future of science in the United States, check out Dan's latest piece highlighting all of the scientists and engineers that were elected into office yesterday. More on AM to DM up next. Well, you know it. We've been talking about it all day. The midterm elections were yesterday, but I'm going to talk to someone who didn't get the chance to vote. Maeve Higgins, comedian, podcast host, and author of Maeve in America. Maeve, thank you so much for joining me. Hi. So you recently- Of course. Yeah. I, I was like walking through my neighborhood yesterday and so many people were like, are you on your way to vote? And I was like, no. And they were like, you've got to vote. I was like, I know, but I can't. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised in the city how many people just randomly were walking up to me and asking me if I was going to vote. It was very interesting. But you recently wrote an essay called Why I'm Sitting Out This Election. So why didn't you get to vote yesterday? Mm -hmm. Well, because I'm an immigrant. Yeah, so what was it like? And uh, I've lived here for almost five years now. And oh, I didn't hear your question. I'm sorry. No, 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 it's totally fine. So obviously, you know, oh, looks like we may have lost her, Maeve. Let's see, we're gonna get her back. I don't know. I don't know, we'll see. Well, yeah, obviously um, Maeve is an immigrant and so she wrote an essay about how she didn't get to vote because she's an immigrant, but living here, that was something that a lot of people um, on Twitter were talking about yesterday because, you know, as an immigrant, you are very invested in the culture and the legislation in this country, but you don't get a chance to have your say. So I know people are like, oh, there she is, she's back. Um, Maeve, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Yeah. And it's really true. Like, I feel like I'm a New Yorker and I live here and I'm part of life here, but I don't have a vote. And I'm not saying that, like, if you move here, you should automatically get a vote. But there's a lot of people living here that, that can't vote, you know, and um, like there's obviously immigrants. But then there's also people who, for mobility reasons or access reasons, can't get to the polls and there's people who are in prison or there's ex-felons who can't vote and there's really millions of us who don't have a voice in these in these really important elections you know but I was thinking that like it wasn't until I, I don't know when I think it was like the um 50s that like properly um Native Americans couldn't didn't all have a vote and again it was like 1965 before every American could vote. So I think as a country, we're just like still figuring it out. <laughs> so in your book, you wrote, it's called Maven America, and you wrote about this experience, about leaving your native Ireland to move to the US. And like you said, you've been living here for about five years. So what does it feel like to be in between these two countries and these two cultures, especially in such an interesting time in American politics? Yeah, I mean, there's a huge Irish-American population here, you know, people whose um, 
great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents moved over from Ireland to the States. And I don't really feel an affinity with all of those people. Like Mike Pence is one, and he talks a lot about his um, about his Irish heritage. He's never talked to me directly about it because I guess we're not allowed to be in the same room without his mom or his wife or something. <laughs> but he always, always talks about like, you know, how his grandfather came over and like started working as a bus driver or a tram driver in Chicago. And he left in the 20s in Ireland, which was um, during the, there was a civil war happening. So his grandfather fled a war and he came to America and he was welcomed here. And that makes me think about Syrians who are in the midst of a terrible civil war, but they're banned from this country. And it also makes me think about, well, yeah, it's cool that he came and he worked as a tram driver. But if you were a black person living in um, Chicago during the 20s, you wouldn't have been allowed to apply for that job. It was kind of all unionized um, by white people. So I find a bit of hypocrisy in the Irish-American community, honestly, especially when it comes to immigrants and, and refugees. Yeah, definitely, for sure. And Maeve, thank you so much for joining me. We got to end it here. But obviously, we did not get to talk about everything we wanted to talk to Maeve about. Um, so I encourage you, if you're interested in what she has to say, Maeve in America, the book is available now. And she also has a new podcast called My Best Breakup on Wednesdays. It's definitely worth a listen. And I'm sorry that the connection was not great and we could not talk to her as much as we wanted to. But up next, Zara and I are reading a few more of your tweets. Okay, we made it. We're back. We're such a huge show, and we got so many great responses from you guys. Yeah, so we asked you how you were feeling about last night's election results. Ms. Jonesy says, I'm pretty ragey, actually. Even though a lot of really, really good stuff happened, I live in Missouri and now have two disgustomantic senators, also worried about so many people still. Yeah, and we had a tweet here from Alicia I would like to highlight. She said, I texted my mom this morning in tears over Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's win. I'm a 32-year-old Puerto Rican and New Yorker who never thought this would happen. I was so proud to share this historical moment with my mom and let her know we finally have someone like us for us in government. That is such a sweet response from Alicia and it is very it's it's sad in many ways that so many people last night finally have someone who looks like them is from the same culture as them yeah. in Congress for the first time but we also can just celebrate the fact that even though it's a little late you know it's happening and it's gonna I think really change how our government works yeah so TR says, we tried here in Texas, we really tried. Trust me when I say voter suppression is real, I've seen and experienced it. Yeah, it was very interesting to hear from Anne Helen about the, you know, the difference between the national outlook on the Senate race in Texas versus how Texans felt because like she said, you know, it really was such a long shot. So just the fact that 
he did get so close to Ted Cruz is a win for many Democrats in Texas. And as how Kate said, in Georgia, we're clearly still tracking to see what actually happened, but I think there's a lot more reporting to come on voter suppression in this election. Definitely, definitely for sure. Well, you guys sent me a lot of funny tweets about my sit down <laughs> with Jason Menzukis. Softy38 says, I have not been able to watch Big Mouth yet. My kid is going through puberty and it's too close to home right now. Yeah, there's, so there's a scene in Big Mouth where, you know, there's hormone monsters that take over the kids and force them to do things because of their hormones. And the thing with the girl and what the monster makes her do to her mother is so spot on in how you felt as a young teenage girl that it just made me want to be like, sorry, mom, sorry. And I might send that clip to my dentist. I don't know. TBD. 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 <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you to our guests, Kate Nassara, Anne Helen Peterson, Paul McLeod, Ben Smith, Tim Ryan, Jason Manzukis, Dan Vergano, and Mae Pivens. Chantal Rochelle and Hayes Brown will be hosting tomorrow's show right here at 10 a.m. And right thank here. you always for sticking with us for all of your coverage, and we'll see you tomorrow. See you guys.